Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, we have some exciting things going on in the life of our church this summer. And so I want to briefly give some updates on what's going on. You heard a little bit about it already, but uh, this Wednesday, again, we're going to begin our Summer Nights series, which is going to be kicking off right here at the water table, 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock p.m. I'm excited about it, and so uh, we're going to be taking a break again from our typical midweek community group gatherings for the summer. We're going to kick them back off in uh, September, which is exciting, but we're going to be getting together uh, every other Wednesday night, and we're going to be honing in on what is most essential about Christianity, the essentials of Christianity and why. And so we're going to be uh, going through, again, the resource called Essential Christianity. It's a great book, and we're going to be looking at uh, what, again, the essentials are. And so this is designed for both the seasoned believer, the new believer, and the unbeliever. So this is going to be able to... uh, It'll be a great platform and opportunity for you to invite friends in who may be curious about what Christianity actually is. We live in a city where Christianity is very confused. We live in a city where a bunch of people, I would say the majority of people, think they are Christians but don't even really know what that means. And so this is an an opportunity for you. Don't take it for granted that someone says, oh, I'm a Christian, or oh, my parents were Christians, and they just kind of label that. So this is just to open your eyes and recognize what is essential and what is not. And so sometimes, especially in a polarized society, we can begin to major on the minors and lose sight of what matters most to the heart of God. And so this series is going to be a great opportunity to not only keep the main thing the main thing, but also a great opportunity, again, to connect in community together and invite others. And so we're going to provide these books for those that sign up. Uh, And and if you don't sign up, we're probably going to have a little extra, but that's not a reason not to sign up, so sign up, right? So uh, you can do that. Um, Let's see, by uh, la, 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 where am I? The QR code um, on your seats. Um, You'll be able to sign up, and uh, you can RSVP that way, um, or risenchurchvb.com. So uh, if you do show up halfway through the series or you miss the first uh, night, that's okay. We're going to be reviewing. We're going to be looking at each chapter and reviewing it ahead of time. So even if you don't read the book or you're not up to date or you just, you know, the person at Wawa is like, hey, what are you doing tonight? And you're like, hey, come with me. Um, that's okay. They're going to fit right in. Uh, it'll be okay. Um, but the most, you'll get the most out of it if you're actually uh, following through. So if you haven't, go ahead and sign up. Um, child care will also be available. Uh, and so also, next Sunday is Father's Day. Yeah. Yay, fathers. So <laughs> uh, what better way to celebrate Father's Day and the heart of a father than through baby dedications? So we're going to be uh, dedicating children. It's going to be exciting. Um, and we also comp- uh, we consider it parent uh, commissioning, right? And so, uh, again, you can sign up, risenchurchvb.com, or use the QR code for that as well. Um, and then one more thing uh, before we get into this passage, which I know every one of you are so excited to get into this passage, right? Um, you, you'll find a bookmark on your uh, chair. It says, uh, Rhythms of Grace. 
And so this is, I want to encourage you all to take part in this with us this summer as well. Um, I just want to explain it real quick so you can see that on it, it says Rhythms of Grace, and, and it has a morning prayer and a bedtime prayer. The morning prayer is essentially the Lord's Prayer, and the bedtime prayer is essentially five things. This is actually something that uh, our family does. It was uh, something that uh, Hannah's parents uh, and, and her brother and sister-in-law uh, do with their children, and we started doing it with our children um, it's talk to, it helps kind of guide your prayer time. Um, so the Lord's Prayer in the morning, uh, and then bedtime prayer is just kind of talk to God about five things. First is to thank God for something, then ask for forgiveness for something. If you can't find anything, then ask God to show you, because uh, that means that you think you're Jesus. And then um, ask for forgiveness for something, and then pray for a family member, and then pray for a friend and then pray for yourself. And, and so the idea here is to really cultivate prayer in our lives. And I also want to encourage you to do this. Um, if you're married, do this with your spouse. So I'm, I'm, you can do all kinds of things. You can do this as a, 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 you can implement rhythms of grace here where you're posturing yourself before the Lord and before his presence, and you can do it together, you grab one another's hand, you pray with one another. The first thing you do before you look at your phone, unless it's to shut off the alarm, maybe grab one, your, your spouse's hand and pray Lord's Prayer together. Right? Then before you go to bed, you don't have to do this, guys. We're going to talk about this, the difference between legalism and license, and sometimes we live in a culture that just reacts to either one. But these are designed to posture you before the presence of God, to posture you in this place of receiving what he has already earned for you. Amen? And so these are great rhythms. And so by doing this, especially, guys, we live in a, an electronic age where we're constantly just focused in on our phones and it's the last thing we see. May the last thing that our brains do not be Facebook. Right? So let's set the phones down, and may the last thing you do be praying. And then the first thing you do when you wake up is prayer. And so these are just some, some encouragements to, to lean into these rhythms of grace. And, um, and we also have uh, these daily Bible readings, which you can see they are also uh, on the 90-day reading plan. Um, you can find this uh, on YouVersion Bible app as well as on our website. And if you miss a day, uh, just... Don't try and start from the beginning. Just dive right in wherever you are. You can go back if you want to, but I don't want you to let, this is an important piece of rhythms, especially when you're posturing yourself in the word of God. Don't let yesterday's famine rob you of today's feast. Okay? A lot of times we get so rule-focused and binary in these things that we just wallow in shame and never stand in the release and grace that God has for us that moment. Amen? And so I want to encourage you um, to, to, to dive into these things. And uh, the purpose here, again, is to posture ourselves before the presence of God um, and not to react to legalism and then run into license or react to license and run into legalism. But the purpose of spiritual disciplines is and always has been about posturing ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Again, not to earn anything, but to receive what has already been earned for us in Jesus Christ, which is what we have, what he has earned for us is himself, his presence, his word, his goodness, his glory. And so um, this is, again, why this series in the Sermon on the Mount is so powerful. 
because we're able to look right into the heart of God and it's proclaimed and demonstrated perfectly in Jesus Christ. And so this Sermon on the Mount is, is three chapters and it's 103 verses straight from the mouth of the creator of the world, God in the flesh. It's literally the best sermon ever preached. And so we're taking the summer to walk through it together verse by verse, which means that we can't jump around or skip over the difficult parts, right? And in case you checked out earlier, this section we've come to this morning is one of those difficult parts. Because Jesus is talking about lust, adultery, sexual immorality, and divorce. And so if you read this passage, though, and and you just read it by itself, you're going to completely misinterpret what Jesus is saying here, and you'll miss the gospel entirely. And so remember, when Jesus preached the sermon, he preached all 103 verses all at once in one sitting. And so we're not walking through all 103 verses this morning in one sitting. We're going to be taking the entire summer to walk through it. Um, And and so it's really important to remember the context of everything that he's saying here. Otherwise, you're going to start to project your own ideas and your own assumptions and your own circumstances onto what he's saying, whether it's what you fear he's saying or what you don't want him to say. And so you kind of project your own thing. It's so important to understand this in the context in which he is speaking. And so we need to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is not simply a sermon about lust and divorce. It's a sermon about our relationship with God at a heart level. Okay? In fact, I'm going to show you this morning that lust, adultery, divorce, and sexual immorality are all symptoms, even illustrations, biblical illustrations of the real issue, which is about knowing and receiving the love of God. And so this is going to be a sermon, or excuse me, this is not going to be a sermon about what you can and cannot get away with. Let me say that again. This is not going to be a sermon about what you can and cannot get away with. That may disappoint some of you. Because so many people approach this passage this way, as if it's just a directive for what's right and what's wrong. Like, it's easy to simply replace the law of Moses with the Sermon on the Mount and then apply it all legalistically. But if you do, you're going to miss the point because Jesus is taking it way deeper than just external rules. There's way deeper than that. But again, that doesn't mean he's relaxing what it's saying. Quite the opposite. He's taking it deeper. We often just want to know what we should do, right? Like I think sometimes that's the tendency of even a self-centered heart is often we just want to know what we can do but what we should do, but it's easy then to miss the entire point for why we should do it in the first place. And so to focus simply on the law and miss what the law is pointing us to or rather who the law is pointing us to, is essentially to worship our own self-righteousness. Like a self-righteous people look to the law for their salvation rather than the Lord. Because the law becomes the means by which they can be saved. They see the law as a way of earning favor and acceptance, which is why they get annoyed at all the relational talk and just want to skip right to what they would consider to be the main point. Like they just say, just tell me what I can and can't do. Just tell me what I, I can, when I can and can't get a divorce. Guys, listen to me. That is 
exactly the type of mentality that Jesus is addressing here. Like, that's like saying, just tell me the bare minimum of what I can get away with, rather than asking, God, what glorifies you the most? Like, what do you desire most? What was I created for? Like, what's the why behind the what for marriage, covenant marriage, in the first place? How can I best know and experience your love and your goodness and your glory? in my life? Like, what's the why behind the what for the law and the entire Old Testament and the whole reason for covenant marriage in the first place? Again, Jesus does not relax the laws around lust and divorce. Not at all. He steps it up by taking it to its root and to its source. And he helps us see the why behind the what, which is relationship with God at a heart soul level. This is all about the love of God. Like, even this passage about lust and divorce is all about knowing the unconditional love of God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you that this morning. Because Jesus is intentionally, this is the context, he is intentionally reinterpreting the Old Testament to show us what it's always been about. He's not reinterpreting it in in a way that's changing anything. He's addressing how people have misinterpreted what it has always been about. And that is the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's relationship, again, with God at a heart level. So as a roadmap for the rest of our time, I've got three points for you. You ready? Three points. Number one, covenant marriage is a holy demonstration of God's unconditional love. Number two, lust is a gateway into bondage. And then number three, Jesus himself is the faithful bridegroom. And that last point is actually going to be the main point this morning. So if you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. Jesus himself is the faithful bridegroom. Because the only way to receive God's unconditional love here is to receive him as the faithful bridegroom, like the one who promises to never leave nor forsake you. But, as we're going to see, love does not insist on its own way. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 13. And so while this promise is available to all, it will not be received by all. Okay, so now, look with me. Matthew 5, verse 27. Let's dive in here. So, you've heard it said, or so Jesus is speaking, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, so here's that reinterpretation, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's reinterpreting the Old Testament law here for a people who have missed the point. And he's already done this, We looked at it last week. He did this with the God-given command not to murder. Last week, we saw that the Pharisees and the religious rulers relaxed that law or that commandment by saying it only applied to your external behavior. But Jesus traced that behavior of murder straight to its heart-level source of anger. We talked about that last week. And then he does the same thing here with adultery. This is one of the commandments that uh, we've been given. Do not commit adultery. And then he traces it to its heart level. 
and to the sin of lust. And so the religious leaders of the day, they had, again, they had embraced an external performance-oriented approach to the law. And Jesus is making it really clear here that it's not just about external conformity, it's about the heart. Because God not only sees the heart. I want you to hear this. Some of you need to hear this this morning. God not only sees your heart, he not only sees the heart, he cares about the heart. He's not just trying to catch you. He's trying to love and transform you. Okay? So the sin of adultery, then, is conceived in the heart as lust. That's what he's saying. So first of all, what is lust? Lust is really about coveting. It's kind of language that the scriptures use a lot. This desiring something that doesn't belong to you. Like stealing. Indulging with the eye and then grasping with the hand for that which has been deemed by God as off limits. And if it's been deemed by God as off limits, it means it's not good for you. Right? So this is why Jesus uses language like, like tearing out your eye or cutting off your hand because lust is sexual theft. Okay? Lust is sexual theft. And it applies to anything sexual outside of the covenant of marriage. That's the definition of it. This world does not like that definition. And that, that, that may sound like an arbitrary rule here until you take in what the covenant of marriage is and why it matters, okay? Why? What's the why behind the what? Why does covenant marriage matter so much to God? What is it? First point, covenant marriage is a holy, sacred, set-apart demonstration of God's unconditional love. It's a demonstration of who he is to this world. See, when we talk about the sanctity of marriage, it's not just about defending conservative values versus progressive ideals. This has got nothing to do with what media or news outlet you listen to. Okay? That's actually a false narrative. The truth is that we need to progress deeper into the truth and goodness of the gospel itself. And so covenant marriage between a man and a woman is actually a reflection of the goodness of God and his love for us in Christ in all kinds of ways that are beautiful. It says, so, verse 20, Genesis 1, 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And so there's something special about masculinity that articulates who God is to all of creation. There's a purpose in your masculinity, guys. And there's also something special about femininity that also articulates who God is to creation. There's something special about that, ladies. And so when these two come together as one in covenant marriage, it full-on preaches the glory of God to all. Look, remember, God himself is Trinity. 
He is three in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three divine persons in one divine nature. He is oneness, but not sameness. He, he is unity in diversity. What? And yet, wow. That's what you should think when you think of the Trinity. What? And yet, wow. Because he's God, and you're not. And it's beautiful. And so this picture Unity and diversity, oneness, not sameness. Three persons, one nature, all selflessly and perfectly unified and glorifying one another in this beautiful dance. It's called, big theological term, perichoresis. It's like a dance within the Trinity. God himself is fellowship. God himself is love, even within himself. And so God created humanity to participate in his love and even reflect it to all of creation. You and me, male and female, designed by God as his very own beloved, unique image bearers. You're beautiful and you're sacred. It's powerful. Female is not better than male, and male is not better than female. Just like one member of the Trinity is not better than the other, yet we are also not the same. This is why sex within sacred covenant of marriage is so amazing. Because it's worship. It's like an invitation into the dance of that oneness or that perichoresis. That's what it is. It's worship. This is why even by design, this is where the presence of the Holy Spirit miraculously breathes new life into new image bearers through that worship session. So by design, it's beautiful and it's holy and it's good. But guys, when it's twisted, it's toxic. It gets tormenting when it's twisted. Out of bounds, it becomes a demonic counterfeit and a tool for self-gratification, which is the demonic playground of our enemy. You see, it's designed by God to articulate the beauty of our relationship with God in Christ. Ephesians 5.23 says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. And then the verse right before it says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The picture here of covenant marriage is that it's inherently selfless and even self-sacrificing. That's the beauty of it. It's not oppressive. It's not domineering, controlling, or overbearing. It's a dance of selfless generosity. To use the scriptures to twist that, not a good idea. The scriptures speak of male headship within the home, but that headship is designed to serve as Jesus did. Romans 15 tells us that Jesus never did anything to please himself. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, again, that love does not insist on its own way. And so this headship is a call to lay down your preferences, not a license to demand them. 
So we're called to serve and love and protect even at the cost of our own lives, much less our egos, right? And so that's what servant leadership looks like. But when we twist that into something self-serving, it preaches a false gospel, not only to the world, but also to your own home. And it's a false gospel that'll get in you if you've experienced that. You see, God gave us the institution of covenant marriage between a man and a woman as a reflection of his love for us in Jesus Christ. And so even from the very beginning, covenant marriage was designed to articulate that unconditional and self-sacrificial love that God has for us. And Jesus demonstrated it. So covenant marriage preaches the gospel to all creation. And so notice here that I'm not just saying marriage, right? I'm saying covenant marriage. And in our society, that's actually an important distinction. I'm saying covenant marriage because there's a difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract is inherently self-centered and self-protective. If I enter a a, a covenant, right, it's self-sacrificial rather than self-centered or self-protective. So a covenant says, if you break your end of the deal, then I take the hit in order to bring you back in. Right? Think about this. If you break your end of the contract, because it's self-centered, it says if you break your end of the contract, then I'm out. But if I break my end, then you're out. It's, that's self-protective, self-centered, self-oriented. But a covenant is different, guys. A covenant is self-sacrificial rather than self-centered or self-protective. A covenant says if you break your end of the deal, then I take the hit in order to bring you back in. It's another level. A covenant says me for you, my life for your life. A contract says if you break your end, you die. And if I break my end, I die. But a covenant says if you break your end, I die for you. It's vulnerable. Requires a whole lot of security. It's selfless. And it's sourced in the everlasting, never-ending, unconditional love of God. And it's aimed at the heart, not simply external conformity. Covenant marriage is inherently giving, loving, protecting, respecting, and self-sacrificial. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7 says this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Some of you may have even had this read at your wedding. If, you have not, if you're not married and you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard it. What's interesting is that this isn't actually in the context of marriage. It's just in the context of God's love for you. That's the power of this. Like, Because you, you, you hear this and you might say, especially all the married people in the room, <laughs> you might say, well, that sounds nice, <laughs> right? But like, who could ever live up to that? Not you, not your spouse, only Jesus. 
That's why he has to be the cornerstone of every marriage. If he is the cornerstone of every covenant relationship, whether it's marriage or just the church. These are the covenant relationships because they're based on his love for us flowing through us. And so he is the source. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's calling his covenant people to tap in and overflow into our marriages and into all the relationships that we have in even the world around us because it's inherently giving. It's inherently giving because it's sourced in and points to the giver who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. He's the ultimate giver. So covenant marriage is designed by God to demonstrate and reflect the love of God to creation. Now hear this. That's why lust and adultery preach a false gospel to the world. Because lust is the counterfeit of love. Like while love gives selflessly, lust takes selfishly. It's a take spirit. It's a self-gratifying spirit, and the more you indulge in it, the more that spirit's going to grip you. And hear this, guys. Ultimately, it's the spirit behind pornography and rape. And don't be deceived. Lust is always demonically charged. And and, and there's nothing ever harmless about it. That's why the more you indulge in it, the more it seems to grip you. But like all demonic activity, that does not relieve you from personal responsibility. Okay? Because the enemy can and will get a foothold in you if you allow him to. And indulging in lust is like inviting a vampire into your home. Right? Like you've seen the movies and other things, like a vampire can't come into your home unless you invite it in. It'll knock, it'll tempt, it'll try to seduce, but if you know it's a vampire, why even answer the door? Because that's the first mistake. It's a trap, it's a snare, and it all seems harmless, just a little self-gratification, and in the end, though, it's self-destructive. Point number two, lust is a gateway into bondage. So hear me, this is not about legalistic rules. This is about recognizing the battle we're in and the enemy that's crouched and ready to devour you. Okay, Proverbs 5 says this, verse 3 through 8. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Remember, Proverbs is is basically a, a father imparting wisdom to his son. Proverbs 6, verse 27 and 28 uses this imagery. It says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So, verse 7, uh, sorry, uh, 
Proverbs 7, verse 6 through 8 says this, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. Proverbs 7, 21 through 27 says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Now, I want you to see this. Is, there's, there's a spiritual element here. The woman here isn't necessarily just a flesh and blood person. There's a spirit going on. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. And so again, hear this. The Pharisee, the religious leaders that were that had that legalistic spirit, they would say, well, I can look as long as I don't touch. You ever heard that before? But Jesus makes it clear that if you're indulging with the eyes, you've already sinned in the heart, and God looks at the heart, and he cares about your heart. And so if it continues to go unchecked, what he's saying is you're going to be grasping with the hand soon enough. With what you indulge with the eyes, you're going to be grasping with the hand because there's a bondage involved. And so this is why Jesus uses this radical language like verse 29, Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so again, he's saying it's conceived through, in the heart, through lust, which begins with what you're indulging with the eyes. Like that, that's lust, right? The action of grasping for those things manifests then with the hand. And so Jesus is using this extreme language here because he knows how demonically charged this snare is. Now for the Pharisee, follow this, for the Pharisee, who wants to take this literally and start lopping off limbs and tearing out eyes, you've missed the point. And you're only thinking about it as it applies to your external behavior. Jesus did this stuff a lot. He would let people who wanted to do that, like apply that external filter to things, he'd let them go over here so he could talk to the people that were actually leaning in and had ears to hear it. And so Jesus is talking about your heart here. He's talking about taking measures to fight lust and resist, resist your own carnal desires and not give the enemy a foothold. Now, there's nothing wrong here, again, with appreciating beauty. I'll say that again. There's nothing wrong with appreciating beauty. And you're not called to live paranoid and in fear all the time. Like, this is not a call for all the women to wear burkas and all the men to walk around blind and limbless. Right? That would be that legalistic route. That's where that goes. Or vice versa. Right? Some of you ladies are like, well, the men need to be wearing the burkas. 
This, though, Burkas is the, the, you know, the covering, head covering, and all the way, all you can see is the eyes, so that's what that is. I want you to hear this. This is about recognizing that God's way is the way of flourishing. And the, any other way is a way of destruction. God's way is the way of freedom. Any other way is a symptom that you are not free. You are bound and ensnared. That's what that is. But, but what if you find yourself already on this path? Look, what if you have found yourself continually on this path and you feel gripped by it? Because that's what this stuff does. It'll grip you. Like, what if you can't stop scrolling on your phone late at night? You find yourself doing these things. You, you, you find yourself lingering with that coworker, or that coworker keeps lingering near you, and, and, and you're going, man, I don't want to do this, but I keep finding myself in this situation. And, and you're walking through that neighborhood of lust over and over, and it seems like no amount of self-imposed discipline or accountability or computer software seems to be helping. I've been walking with Jesus for 23 years now, and I've walked with so many through what seems to be these endless, exhausting cycles of sin. I've seen so many programs and methods for deliverance and discipline to find victory over these like addictions of, of shame and things like pornography. And, and, and hear me, guys, I am not against any of that. It's good, it's helpful. Those steps and these methods, they're often necessary. But, hear me, self-imposed discipline and even constant tough accountability will never be enough in themselves to truly help you find victory. Never. These cycles of sin and addiction can become exhausting and it can even lead to some just to give up and give in or just start even seriously thinking about tearing their eyes out and cutting off their hands. I've seen people walk away from Christianity altogether because they think that there's, it's impossible and I'd rather just indulge than feel this shame all the time. But it's because they missed the one thing. Say one thing. The one thing that matters. The only one solution to this always has been and always will be Jesus. And here's what I mean by that. I don't mean a set of religious principles. I mean him. <laughs> I mean him, his spirit. I don't even just mean his power to help you be better. I'm talking about his affection, his love, his approval, his delight. I'm talking about, as Tim Keller said, the expulsive power of a new affection. Because it's not enough to just know about this new affection. You've got to experience it. You've got to experience him. Because all discipline is simply about posturing yourself before the presence of God to experience the fullness of joy and those pleasures forevermore that are found at his right hand, says Psalm 16. I'm going to say that again. All discipline is simply about posturing yourself before the presence of God to experience the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore that are found at his right hand. That's why this thing's so tricky, guys. Because shame will tell you you don't deserve it. That you're unwanted. 
And did you know that feeling unwanted is probably one of the, they say it's one of the primary triggers for sexual immorality? We'll come back to that. This is why we pray. This is why we read. It's why we fast. Which is, We're going to talk more about this in the next few weeks. It's why we posture ourselves before him whether we feel like it or not. It's not to earn anything. It's simply because we recognize just how poor in spirit we are and how much we need him. It's because we recognize how spiritually needy we are and how vulnerable we are without him. And ultimately, it's because we long to be with him, to know him and be known by him. Which leads me then to the third and final and main point. Jesus himself is the faithful bridegroom. Look at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This was a provision the Old Testament made. Verse 32. But I say to you, Jesus, Jesus says, he's, he's executing uh, his authority, exercising his authority here. And he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Getting hot in here? It's easy to read this and think this hits harder in our society than it would have in the culture that Jesus was speaking to. But that's actually not true. This might shock some of you. Because we think like, oh, well, they divorced, they were so religious that that, this would be far from anything they were doing. He's addressing the reality that they had very low standards for divorce. It didn't take much for them to divorce. In fact, divorce was extremely common in the first century. And in that society, women depended heavily upon their husbands, even for their livelihood. And so if their husband didn't want them anymore... Maybe the food wasn't prepared on time. Maybe the house wasn't clean or she wasn't living up to his expectations. She might receive a divorce certificate. Then she's out. She's on her own. That means if she doesn't find another husband, then she's going to have to potentially even look to prostitution because that was one of the only means of making a life for yourself in that society for women. It's one of the reasons Jesus made sure that his mother Mary was taken care of by his best friend John as Christ was dying on the cross, if you remember that. There would have been many women in this culture who were simply cast aside as unwanted, maybe going from one marriage to another, divorced, divorced, divorced. It actually sheds a little more light on what would have been happening or what could have been happening with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You guys remember this? Jesus stops in the middle of the day to take a drink at a well, and there's this Samaritan woman, she approaches and asks, and Jesus asks her for a drink. She's trying to avoid all the other women by coming in the heat of the day, right? And Jesus asks her for a drink. And she's like, why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus says in verse 9 of John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So again, unwanted, right? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus then asks her to call her husband. <laughs> and she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, I know. You have five and the one you're living with now is not actually your husband. Now it could be that she's simply promiscuous. That's often 
how I have read this, honestly, for so many years, and it's probably there's a lot of truth to this, right? But there's likely more to it than that. I think that in, in that society, it's likely that she was also simply unwanted and likely was about to be kicked to the curb again. It's not that she's not because there's no fault of her own. That's not what this is about. She's not being presented here as just some perfect victim of circumstances. That's not the case here. But again, feeling unwanted is no small thing. Feeling unwanted is tied again to sexual addictions, trying to find purpose somewhere, love somewhere, someone, somehow, affirmation, acceptance, some sense of life. And then she encounters Jesus. The bridegroom himself. And what does he do? He wants her. He, he, he asks her for a drink of water. That would have been like, what? That's significant. She would have felt in that moment wanted. And he then reveals that he is the Messiah that she's been waiting for. He is everything she could ever want. The, the only one... She's always wanted, actually wants her. Knowing everything about her. Remember, she then goes and tells all the people, come and, and, and hear, see a man who knows everything about me. And it transformed her. So the power of Jesus but raising the bar to sexual immorality and adultery in a marriage is a statement. He's saying that covenant marriage is a reflection of how I treat my covenant people, and the only way I would issue an adult, a, a divorce is adultery, not simply disagreement or preference. So all those feelings of being unwanted or insecure, gone. But wait a minute. Jesus just made the case that showed how basically... <laughs> Everybody's an adulterer. And you know what an adulterer is? To Jesus, the bridegroom, an adulterer is someone who says, wait, I don't want you. I want someone other than you. So by saying, I will allow that divorce, is Jesus saying, if you don't want me, I'll allow you to leave. You see this? So is he justified then in divorcing them? In, in Matthew 16, Jesus even calls the generation who's only looking for a sign or a miracle from him an evil and adulterous generation. It's a take generation. They didn't care about him. They just wanted something from him. They didn't care about the relationship. They only cared about what they could get out of him. And if he didn't provide what they wanted the way they wanted it, they were going to move on to somebody else. And isn't that how humanity treats God? Revelation even unveils a vision of the spiritual realities in which we live, the spiritual realities that are unfolding all around us, even right now. Chapter 17 of Revelation presents an adulterous woman who was unfaithful to her good and faithful husband. She's a representative here. 
And so she seduces the kings of the world into a rebellious orgy of unfaithfulness to God, and she is fueled and propped up even by the spiritual forces of this evil age that rage against the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. But look, she's not just presented as an enemy. What we see is that she's used as a tool of the enemy. In fact, she's used and she's abused and then she's eventually devoured by the very power who props her up. She's known in Revelation as the whore Babylon. You see, sexual sexual immorality and adultery are often used synonymously in Scripture with idolatry. This is important. Because an idol is anything you want more than you want God. You guys tracking? And so by, desire, sorry, by deserting God and chasing other functional saviors that you look to rather than him, whether it's money or sex or the praise of people or anything that you want, again, more than you want God, that is an idol. It's like cheating on God. It's like running, it's, it's like deserting him. And it's really the heart behind all sin because it's unmet perceived needs, which is really the heart behind all of our sins. So the question when you find yourself in sin is, what am I looking for here that I'm not finding in Jesus? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Because Jesus offers living waters that satisfy abundantly. And he doesn't just offer them to the pristine and the spotless. His living waters, listen, they're not just the reward, they're the solution. They're not just the reward for getting your life clean. It's how you, they're the waters you wash your robes in to get clean. He is the faithful bridegroom. And he offers us life even in our sin. He doesn't turn his back on you. This is a theme throughout the Bible. There's an entire Old Testament book called Hosea that is essentially about a prophet named Hosea called by God to stay faithful to his wretchedly unfaithful bride named Gomer. She's constantly cheating on him. She's basically a prostitute. She's running around constantly. And God says this is how he is, how God is toward his unfaithful covenant people, constantly taking her back, constantly, continually. And so it's important to recognize that he is justified in issuing the divorce to the unfaithful. 1 Corinthians 7 also makes it clear that desertion is also grounds for divorce, which makes sense because in light of true adultery, that's what it is. I don't think Paul is saying something different even than Jesus is. Because love does not insist on its own way. God desires that all are saved hear this, but he does not insist on it because he wants your heart. That's what he cares about. Salvation requires confession, poor in spirit. It requires repentance to turn to him as Lord and Savior. And then it requires belief. But here's the thing. When that happens, the the adulterer becomes the bride. See, even in Revelation, this great whore is starkly contrasted and intentionally compared or juxtaposed with a pure virgin bride. And her robe has been washed in the blood of the Lamb and presented to Christ the King in spotless, gleaming purity. She is 
the church. She is the people of God. She is those who have been called out of the world and given a new name and a new identity in Christ Jesus. She's called faithful and she's called chosen. You, church, are called faithful and you're called chosen. She is the one who's been made pure, not one who is pure in and of herself. Her robe has been washed in the blood of the lamb. In fact, the Bible is littered with this kind of imagery like prostitutes like Rahab who was redeemed and even grafted into the royal bloodline of Jesus. Like every one of us in here today, and I've told you this before, but this is the power of this imagery. Everybody in here is either represented by the great prostitute or the bride of Christ. And there's no in-between. You're either the whore Babylon or the spotless, pure bride that's represented, or that represents the church. So if you realize this morning that, these, uh, that of these two, you're not represented by the bride of Christ, my hope is that you will not leave here until she does represent you. Because Jesus is the faithful bridegroom and he offers this unconditional, unrelenting, everlasting love to all who receive him by faith. This is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserve to die. And he conquered death in the grave through the resurrection and he paves the way to eternal life and it's an eternal life that starts now when we're filled with his spirit, we're given heavenly robes of white and purity. That's the picture of who we are even now, spiritually, in Christ. So, Martin Luther, and I'm going to close with this. Martin Luther famously describes the gospel um, in what he calls the great exchange. And, and it's a picture of Jesus proposing marriage to an adulterous, wayward woman. <laughs> it, it, it's, in marriage, it's a picture of, you know, all that is the brides becomes the grooms and all that is the grooms becomes the brides, right? So it, it, all that is hers becomes his, her sin, her rebellion, her debt, right? When you got married, some of you might've been shocked. You're like, oh, wait, your student loans are now my student loans, what? Right? And so this is the picture. This is covenant marriage. So her sin, her rebellion, her debt, it all becomes Christ's. And he nailed it to the cross and he took it upon himself. My sin, my debt, all that I owed, he took it and he paid for it. Completely. It became his. But it doesn't stop there. All that is his suddenly becomes ours. His relationship with God the Father. His inheritance of the kingdom, heirs to the kingdom of heaven, eternal life and eternal love. Guys, that becomes, that's what's ours in Christ. This is the great exchange. Like, this is the most amazing thing in the history of the world. This actually happened for you. This is who we are in Christ. And so are you, are you talking to him about what you're struggling with? Or are you trying to figure it out yourself? Are you going to your faithful bridegroom? He stands ready at the door of your heart. The question is, right, will you let him in? Are you trying to do it all on your own? Because he's saying, I got this. 
and I've got you. He desires to bring wholeness in that pain and healing to those hurting relationships. Nothing is too big for him, and you are never too far gone. He is the solution himself. And he saves to the uttermost. This is what the bridegroom's done for us. Jesus himself, he is the faithful bridegroom. Let's pray.